Father, we bow here in your presence this morning. We thank you for all your blessings. We thank you, Father, for those that have uh, given so generously to the shoebox ministry. Father, our prayers now is that you would lead us into your word, that you would open it up for us and make it evident to us that we might apply it to our lives and be changed. Now go with us, Father, and guide us through this process. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all be seated. You know, you've all heard the phrase before that seeing is believing. And uh, I think that, you know, we look at that and we think, well, that's true. You need to look at the evidence and seeing is is certainly reason to believe, but that's not always true. And a lot of times it's it's really false because what you see is not always truth or real or accurate, um, especially in the realm of spiritual truth. A lot of times what you see is not real at all. The Bible tells us that Satan is a force to be reckoned with and is determined to destroy us. Now, he knows that the Christian, you and I, would never, ever tolerate knowingly giving in to him or knowingly following him or knowingly listening to him. So he uses another means of attack, and that is probably his greatest weapon, as you will see in a moment. The means of attack, his greatest weapon, is called deception, because this is how he deals with you and me, and this is how he defeats us. Deception, his greatest weapon. Now, this is shown throughout all of the Bible. All you've got to do is look through the pages of Scripture, and you're going to see that men and women who fell in the Bible were first deceived. Adam and Eve, for example, were deceived in the garden to believe something that wasn't true, and they acted on it. David, the king, was deceived when Satan prompted him or tempted him to number his army when God had told him not to. And he was deceived through those means. Even Jesus in the wilderness, when Satan came to tempt him, he tried to deceive Jesus. Now, it didn't work, but the, the attack was the same then, too. And it always has been, all the way down through history. It is, same, it is the same attack that he uses here in this passage that we're going to be looking at today as we talk about in this story of Joshua. We talk about this incident in Scripture where the Israelites, and Joshua in particular, were deceived. Today we're going to look at the most powerful weapon that Satan has. We're going to talk about deception. We're going to talk about the dangers that we face and how that affects our lives. And we're going to talk about how do you guard against it. So as we jump into this text today, I'm going to move a little quickly to get this text covered and give you a clear picture of what's going on. And then we're going to go right into the applications How do you guard against this? Because it is going to happen. And so it's very important that you understand this. And the context of our story, what has happened up to this point, you know that Jericho has been defeated, the city of Ai. These are major cities in this land that God is bringing the Israelites into in the book of Joshua. Last week we looked at how that they have gone through a period of renewal and um, recharging, so to speak, at Mount Ebal. They are again given the law of God and reminded of that. And now we find as we open in chapter 9, beginning with the first two verses, here's what's taking place. (coughs) It says, Now when the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country and the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, 
the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. Now, from all indications, these kingdoms had not been united before. They were probably fighting among themselves. But now they see a greater threat, so they're coming together to band together to fight against Joshua and the army as God brings them into the land of Canaan. Now, all of these kings are within the boundaries of Canaan. <coughs> Excuse me, I've got a cold. You have to bear with me. And so they are there in the land, and they are there to protect themselves, and they're fighting against Joshua and the Israelites. It says down in verses 3 through 6, However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Now, here's what's going on with this. They've come, and they are not from a distant country. They're from one of the cities there within the boundaries of the land of Canaan. And they have disguised themselves to look as though they've been on the road for quite some time. They've got old wine sacks that are cracked and worn out and mended. They put on old clothes, patched sandals, worn out clothes. Even the bread that they brought with them is now old and molded. They've done everything that they can to make themselves appear as though they have come from a distant country. In the text, we're not going to read through all of it, but the text goes on to say that they went on and on and on talking about how far away they live and Look at all the things that you see before you, how we are worn out and we're, we're tired and we're dirty and we've been traveling a long ways just to come and make a treaty with you. Because we heard about Moses and we heard about what happened to the Egyptians and they're very careful not to mention anything about what, take, what has taken place recently in the land. But they talk about all the stuff about Moses. And they say, in effect, we want to come and we want to make a treaty with you. And this is what they've come for. Now the question is this. Why in the world this deception? What is it that they're trying to do with disguising themselves to be something that they're not? Now if you've been following along with us in our study in this, you'll understand why, but let me just read for you a couple of passages. If we go back to the book of Exodus, when Moses is with the, with the Israelites in the desert before they ever come into the land, here are the instructions that he gives to the Israelites. Exodus 34, verse 12. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will be a snare among you. In, verse, in chapter 23, verse 32 of Exodus, it says this. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Now, what was he trying to accomplish by telling the Israelites this? God had commanded Moses, you tell them when they go in there, I have given these people of Canaan 700 years to repent. They haven't. Now I'm sending you in as my arm of judgment and you're to to destroy them. We've talked about that in the past weeks. Do not make treaties with them. I don't want you to make a treaty. I don't want you to give them a second chance. It's not your call. It's mine. I'm done with them. 
So when you go into the land, you destroy them, every man, woman, child, living thing that is there within the boundaries of that land, you're to take and be destroyed. Now let me show you also in the law where Moses was speaking to the people, what Moses said to do with people that are outside the boundaries. Here's what he talks about now in Deuteronomy. Moses wrote this too. In chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 15 real quick. It says, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves, and you may use the plunder the Lord, the Lord gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat, and watch this, this is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. So the command is very clear. If they are within the boundaries of Canaan, then you're to kill them. If they are outside the boundaries and you go up to the city, you can offer them peace if they surrender. If they don't, then take them. But the command is to destroy everything within the boundaries because I don't want any snares left behind. Nobody, no idols, no anything that's going to cause you to stumble because I'm building a nation here of godly people. It will serve me and honor me and be a witness throughout the world and so forth. Now, we know that um, from history that didn't happen. Israel, in fact, as we'll talk about in weeks to come, didn't clean out the land, didn't do what they were supposed to, and it was a constant thorn in their side. But this is what they're being told to do here. The Gibeonites know this. The Gibeonites know several things, and I want you to, to think about this. For example, they knew the land boundaries. You see, God had given to the Israelites way more land than, than just the land of Canaan. They, how did they know that? You know, the Bible talks about your land is from the Euphrates to the north all the way around into Egypt, all the way up to the Nile River. And then further out from where you are now, further eastward. How did they know that? They also knew that it was safe if you were outside those boundaries, but you were going to be put to death if you were inside those boundaries. How did they know that? They also knew that if you can get an Israelite to swear an oath by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then that is a binding oath and they can't go back on it. So they are trying to get them to make a peace treaty with them and swear an oath by God. That's what they're after. So the question then becomes, how did they know all of that? Well, there are several possibilities. First of all, they may have had spies that wandered in and out of the, the group from time to time, dressed like a Jew. They could have known that. They could have heard, been eavesdropping as Moses reads for them the law, or uh, Joshua even. Uh, there could be several apparent logical reasons, or there could be another one. It could be because these people were so into the occult that that's how they found out. That somehow Satan had warned them and told them, this is what is true. This is what you're going to do. 
They were very, very much into the dark arts. They were into the occult. They were into child sacrifices. They were into so many things. And as a matter of fact, in later on in the end of the, of the, of the chapter, that we won't be looking at really this portion of it, but it says in chapter 9, verse 24, after Joshua finds out what has happened, after he makes this treaty with them, he finds out, he asks them, why? Why did you do this? And here's what they say. Now watch. In verse 24, Joshua 9, it says, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants before you. How did you know this? He says, well, we were clearly told. And we're not really privy to what, who told them. We're, we're not let in on that. So it could have been spies. It could have been Satan himself who, who revealed it to them. But at any rate, they do deceive the Israelites. Let's go back into the story now, back to where they are encountering these people for the first time. Chapter 9 of Joshua, verses 14 through 15. It says, The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Oh, goodness. There's that same dumb mistake again, isn't it? Same thing they've done before, and here they're doing it again. They sampled the provisions. They looked and they saw, yeah, there's really old stuff, man. They've been on the road for a long time, but they never asked of the Lord. In verse 15 it says this, Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. In other words, they're swearing an oath before God that we will make a treaty with you, we will not kill you, and we'll be at peace. A terrible mistake. Something they should not have done. And we'll talk about some of the reasons for it in a moment. Three days later, they find out what has taken place. Down in chapter 9, verse 18, it says this, But the Israelites did not attack them. Because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. Now they can't kill them. They realized who they are, but now they can't do anything about it because the leaders swore an oath to God that they would protect them and take care of them and be at peace with them. And now they can't do anything. It says that everybody grumbled against the leaders. Now why? Why? Well, several reasons. Maybe they were scared of what God might do because they'd been disobedient. More likely, they were mad because this is plunder they don't get to keep. So probably, maybe a little bit of greed, maybe a little bit of fear, I don't know. But at any rate, they grumble against the leaders. Now, just a couple more verses, and then we'll jump into the application. In verse 21, they continued... Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. They promised, they kept the promise, they didn't kill them, but they made them servants. They are to be woodcutters and water carriers. Now watch this, down in the last two verses, verses 26 and 27. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites... And they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly. 
to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. So whenever Joshua was writing this later on and it's finished up by somebody else, they are writing and they're giving this account and this story. They're saying that even today, that's what they do. They were made servants. And they would bring, now remember this, there are sacrifices going on continuously throughout the day, throughout the week. And there was a tremendous amount of wood needed just for the service of the altar. Water was also needed for cleansing and for just cleaning up. But these were things that they were given to do. We'll talk a little bit later as to what happened to them. Did they become the snare that uh, God was concerned they might be? Actually, they didn't. And we'll talk about that later on. But in this particular situation, Joshua has allowed himself to be fooled. And he's allowed himself to be deceived. Um, You know, you ask how. How could that have happened to him? Well, there are a number of reasons. And the things that I want to share with you now are not only just looking at some of the reasons, but they're looking also at some of the challenges for you and me. Because every time we have to make a decision, every time we have to make a choice, every time we are concerned about what to do in a given situation, there's always the possibility of being deceived. And you and I have to understand that. And you and I have to be ready for that. And you and I have to guard against it. So the question then for you and for me for every other Christian, is how do I guard against being deceived? So let me share with you. I want to share with you six things, and I'm going to do it in about 20 minutes here, so I'll get you out, okay? So just bear with me. Here are the lessons about how to guard against being deceived. Number one, never underestimate the power of satanic deception. Never underestimate it. I think sometimes we do. Sometimes we think to ourselves, because it's not a frontal attack, because Satan doesn't make himself obvious, we don't stop to understand the reality of the deception. The satanic attack is real. The satanic deception is real. Satan's whole goal in this is to destroy your life, your testimony, your witness, your effectiveness for the Lord. Um, if, If you're neutralized, so to speak, then you have nothing to worry about because Satan's not going to waste his time on you. But if you try to do anything for the Lord, if you try to live for the Lord, if you're a witness for the Lord, if you are serious about your faith, there will be times when you're tempted with doubt, when you're tempted with sin and you give in. There will be times when all you want to do is step back and just quit and be lazy and do nothing. There will be times when you're discouraged. There will be times when your life is ruined because of a foolish choice that you made. And it could be as simple as this. It could be as simple as choosing the wrong friends. The attack could come because you married the wrong person. The attack could come because you took the wrong job. You made a choice that you thought was right and good only to find out that it's a miserable place and you have been neutralized as far as your witness or your testimony. It could be something as as simple as the way you invest or spend your money. 
when you make un ungodly choices or wrong choices, the way you use your leisure time. You see, the idea is to deceive you. You're not going to see it coming. You don't, you don't even think or, or contemplate the possibility that this could be a satanic attack if you're just given the choice. But yet we face it all the time. And we just make these choices and, and they come into our lives and they are subtle. They sound so appealing. It, it, you know, it looks right. When the Gibeonites uh, came to the Jews, they, they used the, the Israel's law against them. They knew what the law was and they used it to their benefit. When satanic attacks come your way, it's not going to look like Satan. It's going to look like wisdom and a good choice and the right thing to do. And this is good. And you're going to make it only to find that it was a mistake. Listen to what the New Testament tells us. Now listen to these, these very carefully. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is talking about forgiveness in the chapter. And he's encouraging people to forgive each other. And then down in verse 11, he says this. Forgive in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes now notice what he's warning you against he's going to outwit you he's going to play you he's going to be smarter than you see the problem is we're not very familiar with the schemes you know we wear our, our crosses around our neck and we go to church and we you know we're all about Jesus and then we'll go out during the week and make the most foolish, ungodly choices that you could possibly make. It was say, oh, I didn't know that was Satan. I didn't know that's what it was. Yeah, it's subtle. He outwits you. He doesn't just defeat you. He outwits you. Listen to what else Paul says. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. He says, for such people are false apostles. Now, he's talking about teachers. He says, such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. That's hard to believe, isn't it? They are masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if the servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Boy, that, that's a lot to take in. Because you look at somebody that's uh, in ministry or a preacher or a TV evangelist or somebody that you know and trust, and Paul's saying, look, Satan's not out there with the pitchfork. You're not going to see him. He's going to be in, in your life by, with somebody that you trust, somebody that teaches you, somebody that you listen to. And he's going to outwit you and deceive you, and he will use your own scriptures against you. It's what he did with Eve, and it's what he tried to do with Jesus. I think sometimes we don't realize the reality of this. And we do underestimate the power. We think that it's trivial. 
And sometimes I think that we believe that because we're Christians, we're immune to this. And you are the very target. You're it. And you are in the crosshairs. One of the most astounding verses to me in all of the Bible is this verse I'm going to read to you now. Now listen very carefully. This is Jesus teaching in the New Testament when he was asked about the end times. And he's teaching the apostles or the disciples as they're sitting there and people that were there too about the end times and what's going to happen. And he makes this statement because this is chilling. So pay attention. Matthew 24, 24. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. What does that one mean? He's telling you that in the end times there will be such an onslaught of an attack that comes on mankind. That during those end times, the people that are coming to Christ in the tribulation period, and he's calling them the elect, just like everyone else is the believer, we're the elect. He said there will be great signs and wonders that Satan performs. Now you need to understand this. Signs and wonders, these are miracles. These are miracles that are taking place. And right before their eyes, he said, and it will deceive quotations, if it was possible, now that's encouraging to me because he's saying it's not possible, but if it were possible, he would deceive even the Christians. Guys, I don't know about you, but I would like to think that it would take a lot to deceive me. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, we know so much, and we're so well educated, and we study the Bible, and no, they're not going to ever deceive me. What are you going to do when you see right before your eyes miracles, signs and wonders, and a message that is ungodly? I cannot tell you the number of times I've encountered people who because of some crusade or some place they went and they've seen miracles and signs and things that somebody has prayed for and something that's happened, and the message they are regurgitating is the most ungodly message I've ever heard. So, well, what happened to you? How did you get to here? Well, hey, look, man, it's right there in front of me, you know. Hard to argue with that. Well, no, it's not really. If you knew your Bible, you would know that Satan's going to deceive you, and it's not going to, uh, it's going to be frivolous. We don't look for it, therefore we don't, therefore we fall for it. We don't look for the deception, therefore we fall for it. You and I have to assume, now think about this, you and I have to assume, based on Scripture, that Satan is always, always trying to seduce me. He is always trying to lead me astray. And I think sometimes we, we get so comfortable with our abilities to perceive things that we think to ourselves, well, I'm smarter than that. Well, smarts have nothing to do with it. You know, and you and I have to be attuned to this, this truth, this idea, that satanic deception is always around us, and we are never, ever immune to it. And if we're on guard, you see, at least 
we have a chance if we're on guard. So the first one, never underestimate the power of the satanic deception. Number two, seek God's direction for every single decision. This was his big mistake there we saw in the text. All of this came and hit him, and it never once did he go and say, Okay, Lord, what do I do? I, I just got beat at the city of Ai because I didn't inquire, and now I'm doing it again. And we're no different. In the simplest decisions that we make in the course of a day, we think to ourselves, are no big deal. And in the end, they come back to bite us because it was the wrong decision and we didn't see the outcome of what that was going to do. In James chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. You know this little phrase, who gives generously to all without finding fault. I think sometimes when it comes to us taking our choices before the Lord and asking for God's direction, praying for wisdom and being patient and waiting, we sometimes think to ourselves, I'm really bothering God because this is so trivial. Well, it says here that if I want wisdom, if I want understanding, no matter what it may be, if I want to know something, then take it to the Lord. He's going to give generously because he wants you to understand and he's not going to find fault with you for coming. And it'll be given to you, no matter how small it is. Guys, get into the habit. Everything you have to decide on, then you need to say, okay, Lord, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? And you seek his direction. Number three, here's the third one. I'm moving quickly here, okay? Commit to obey before you ask. I want your direction. Now, I told you, I've given you this point before, but maybe worded a little bit different. If you've been listening, you, you would recognize this, okay? But you commit to obey God before you ever ask God. Now, this is important, okay? Because sometimes we come before the Lord and we say, okay, Lord, I'm, 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 the pastor said i got to come and talk to you, and he told me I need to ask you, so I'm coming and I'm asking. And sometimes in the back of our minds we're thinking, I want to hear from you, hear what you have to say, and then I'm going to decide. Uh-uh. No. See, this is not up for vote. You're not shopping for options. See, I want you to tell me, God, and, and then I may not do it. I just want to hear what you have to say. So God is silent. God is silent. Let me read you this verse. It's kind of a strange verse. Um, a strange in the sense that, well, you'll see. What does it mean, type thing? It's in John chapter 7, verses 16 through 17, this is Jesus talking, and he makes this statement. He says in verse 16, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. Now he's talking about it comes from the Father. He said, it comes from the one who sent me. Now watch this verse. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Now, the people in the crowd were wanting to know, are you really making this up, or does this come from God the Father? Is this really true? Because this is really different than what we've been reading in the Law of Moses and so forth. And so he said, okay, here's the deal. You want direction, basically. You want truth. You want to know 
whether what I'm teaching you is true or not. So here's the deal. You choose to obey it. And then God will tell you. It will become evident. Now the application is the same for you and me. Lord, I want to know. I want to know what I'm supposed to do. I want you to speak to me. I want to know what God wants. I want answers. God says, okay, are you going to obey them if I give them to you? Well, I don't know. Let me hear them first. God says, no, I'm not going to do it. And we pray and we get nothing because in the back of our minds, we think that it's our job to evaluate it. And so if I want to know what God has for me, then I've got to make a commitment that, okay, God, I don't know what you're going to tell me or what you're going to lay on my heart, but here's the choices I'm given. Here's what I'm facing. And Lord, I'm telling you right now between you and me, I will do whatever you tell me to do. Whatever you lay on me, God, I'll I'll do it. That's how much I want to know. And to that person, God reveals himself. This is a very important principle in Scripture. You commit to obey before you ever ask, no matter what the answer is, no matter what God says. You commit to do that. Here's the fourth thing, very quickly. You and I have got to look beyond the obvious. If I am trying to guard myself against being deceived, then I've got to look past what's obvious, what's right there in front of me. Now, for example, the delegation that came from these people, the uh, Gibeonites, and they come up to to Joshua, if Joshua would have just asked a few questions or made some observations, he might have saved himself a lot of trouble. For example, a real delegation from another group, from another kingdom, they would have put their best foot forward. See, they would have taken the time to change into some clean clothes and bathe themselves and look presentable and look decent to come into the presence of another dignitary to make a deal for a peace treaty. They came looking like vagabonds on purpose. And all Joshua had to do was stop and think, why are they doing this? Why would a delegation from another empire, another group, another city, why would they not show me the respect of at least cleaning up and becoming presentable in order to talk about a treaty? You see, you and I need to look beyond the obvious. We need to get all the facts. And sometimes that takes, that means taking the time We slow down. If if a decision has to be made that quick, then just don't make it. You learn. Each day that goes by, the Lord has time to speak to you. The Lord has time to show you. You begin to lose those rose-colored glasses that we all have on. And you begin to think about things objectively before you make a decision. You're able to ask the questions and find the answers and not be rushed, but you have got to make the time to do that. Look beyond what is there in front of you, what is so obvious. You know, this is true when it comes to young people choosing to get married, or anybody for that matter. Sometimes the whirlwind romance takes takes a, a life of its own, and the next thing you know, you know, you're you're in love and. It's so obvious to you that this is the right thing and you haven't really taken the time. You haven't slowed down. You haven't asked questions. You haven't really taken the time to find out what this other person is really like. And you make a mistake. 
looking around the objects. Here's the fifth thing that I want you to do. Is that this is this. You need to be suspicious of people who oversell themselves. You need to be suspicious of anybody who oversells themselves or their product. Now here's what happens. All through the passage, you can go back and read it on your own, the parts that I didn't read to you. These Gibeonites were selling the Israelites on who they are. We are from so far away, you wouldn't believe how far away we are. And you can just look at our sandals and our clothes and our bread and everything. You know how far away we are. We would never be within the boundaries of the land. I mean, on and on. It's like they're just overdoing it. There are times in life where people overdo it. They oversell you. Somebody's always telling you how good they are. Somebody's always telling you how honest they are. If somebody has to tell you they're honest, watch out. You know, it's just true. You should be able to know that and to see it and know their reputation. If I have to tell you that I'm an honest man, then be careful of who, who I am because I'm trying to sell you on something. It's amazing to me how often we do this. I cannot tell you the number of times. I've been in church ministry in some form or fashion for 40 years. In the number of times that people have come into my office, even when I was on staff, wasn't the pastor, but especially uh, as pastor in various churches, people come into my office and they want to sell me on themselves. They'll come in and talk about their ministry and how wonderful it is and how we as a church need to be involved with them and, or their missions program they're doing or them as missionaries or their abilities to teach and to help us out to be just the end all for our church and what we're looking for and go on and on and on. And you just kind of wait until the shoe falls because you know it's coming. And eventually they'll get around to asking for what they really want, what they're really seeking. They're seeking financial help or support. They're seeking position in the church. They're seeking authority or power. They're seeking fame. You'd be amazed at the things that people really want and think they can get from the church. There have been people in the past that have come into this church to sell you on something that they were offering and loved the church. Oh, just loved it. Until all of their contacts were used up and then they're off and gone somewhere else. It happens all the time. And you and I need to be suspicious because when people are overselling themselves, just be cautious. If you're trying to prevent yourself from being hoodwinked and deceived, Watch out for that. Now, here's the last one, number six. Don't be seduced by your emotions. Don't be seduced by your emotions. Um, I believe, I, I don't know, I can't prove this, but i got to believe that Joshua gave into this so easily, this treaty. Because I think deep down Joshua wanted to. Now think about this. I mean, you, we can't imagine the slaughter that they had gone through. How many people they put to the sword and it's killing and killing and killing. And now he's got somebody coming from a faraway land who wants to be their ally. And i got to believe, you know what, that's a little bit of a change. That's different. I, I, we need friends. We want friends. We want a relationship with somebody. And I think to some degree Joshua and the Jews thought this is a great thing. We're going to have friends and allies and maybe they can help us in some way. And so he 
swallows it hook, line, and sinker. And we do the same thing. You'd be amazed at the number of times I catch myself praying to God, Oh, Lord, give me direction. Give me wisdom. Lord, help me to understand what to do. And then if I really search my soul, I've already made up my mind anyway. He already decided. I'm just going through the motions. God, here's what I'm going to do. Just rubber stamp it. That's what I'm really asking for. And the reason I made up my mind was because, hey, it felt good. I mean, I, I felt good about the decision. It was appealing to me, you know, and I made, a, just like Joshua, a decision based superficially on what I thought and felt. And there are times like this especially, when you think that you're making a decision based on emotions, that you really need some input from friends. See, this is when you use other people to lay it out before them and say, I need you to help me think about this objectively. What should I do here? Because I don't want to be deceived and listen to their counsel. These are just some things that I hope will help you. Number one, you never underestimate the power of satanic deception. Number two, you seek the Lord's direction no matter how small the decision may be. Number three, you commit to obey him before you ever ask. Number four, you look beyond the obvious. Don't Just look at what you see in front of you. Look past it. You be suspicious of people who try to oversell themselves or just too pressing or too pushy. And number six, don't be seduced by your emotions. Don't be seduced by the way you feel. Guys, I pray for each one of us. I pray for myself too. I don't want anybody's life to be destroyed or hurt or hindered because we've been deceived. And you and I have got to be aware of this. We've got to be strong. And we've got to be able to make godly decisions all the time. These, I hope, will help you to do that. Learn from the experiences and the mistakes of others. Okay? If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, you don't understand what it's all about, let me read you one verse, then we're going to get out of here. The verse is this, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's God's promise to you. If you're here today and you don't know that, God says you can have eternal life and you can know it by putting your faith in him. I'd love to talk with you about that. If you have questions, there are some yellow cards there in the seat back in front of you. Just fill that out, drop it in the offering plate. I'll be more than happy to call you, sit down together with you, and just be honest and talk. Don't put this off. Don't do that. Let's deal with this now, okay? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, give us understanding. Father, as we face the decisions of life, Father, help us to make godly decisions based on a process whereby we have been aware of the fact that we could be deceived very easily. But we've gone through a process of investigation and prayer and searching And Father, I pray that each one of us in here would make godly choices. Not between right and wrong, but what's right for us in that given situation. But Father, whatever it may be, whether it may be who to marry or what business to go into or where to move, whatever. Father, how will it affect me and my family? And how would it affect my relationship with you? That we might be wise people in the choices we make. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.